Good morning. Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outsiders. Purge the evil person from among you. This is God's word. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer, it was funny, I was walking up, and behind me, as Susan finished, I could hear a few people go, mm, you know, it's not very comforting. Uh, this is not a feel-good text, is it? I did want to say, thank you for your, um, for your kindness and your patience and your uh, joyfulness this morning as we uh, wrestle with what exactly happened to our computer uh, back there. Uh, We used to have a saying back in the early days, uh, welcome to church planting. I don't know that we can really kind of leverage that anymore, although it would be fun. Back in the early days, we met at the high school, and um, in God's wisdom, the Lord just just has a sense of, we used to say the Lord has a sense of humor. I don't know that he has a sense of humor as much as he is just committed to thwarting us, right, to teach us to live by faith, but... um, we started meeting in October, and the Lord saw fit to wait until the hottest Sunday in August for us to show up in the air conditioning, not work in the building that we rented. And so I preached the shortest sermon in the history of this church, which many were probably grateful for and would love to see us return to. However, uh, there just seems like there's always things. And I am a firm proponent that the devil is in technology. I mean, he really is. Satan works through technology in a way in the church that is amazing. So no, but thank you. Thank you for your joy. We're here to celebrate uh, the risen Christ, whether we sing from a piece of paper or we sing from words on a screen. Uh, it does not matter. Uh, so thanks. Um, this, is, this is a daunting passage that is before us. It's really a daunting um, book 
your letter that we're trying to work through as we make our way through 1 Corinthians. Paul's writing to the church, and beginning here in chapter 5, what he's going to be doing is he's going, he's right, he's, we're told here, he, he says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter, he does not mean this letter, there's a previous letter Paul has written to this church that we do not have. Uh, and that's unfortunate, but we do, we do have this one. And so what Paul is doing is Paul planted this church in Corinth. He has moved on, because this is what he did. He came into a city and gathered people together and planted a church and put leadership into place and then moved on to another city and did the same thing. And once he had moved on, he would often write back to the churches that he'd planted to kind of further teach them and encourage them, and in this case, to, to correct them and rebuke them in some ways that they had, that had, they had begun to err from his original teaching. So here in chapter 5, basically through the rest of, the, of the, the, the letter, Paul is just listing a series of things that he, he's taking issue with some things that are happening in the church in Corinth. Uh, and it's hard. <clears throat> and it should feel to us to be hard too, because in many ways, uh, we as a culture are much like the culture of Corinth. And so the things that feel stinging, uh, that felt stinging to the Corinthians should also feel stinging to us, okay? And that, so that's what we have to look forward to for the next few months as we work through this, this letter. Okay, this morning the issue you'll see there in verse 1 is that there is sexual immorality in the church. A man has his father's wife. Now, that's scandalous. Uh, and if, if you are curious, um, I would tell you, get your mind out of the gutter. But, the, you know, it's kind of unavoidable, right, exactly what he means. I have no satisfactory answer. We don't really know what Paul means when he says a man has his father's wife. It probably means a stepmother. Uh, however, uh, we can't be exactly sure. Whatever it was, here's all you need to know. It was bad, right? Um, Paul doesn't give a lot of detail, okay? And, and I, the point I want to make to you right here at the beginning is, is that is really telling. He does not appear to be concerned so much with the scandal itself. Rather, his main concern, the reason Paul even brings this up, is he's writing and he's concerned about how the church has handled the scandal. So that means that this passage is not about sexual immorality. Okay, sexual immorality is a pro- in the church is a problem. We're going to deal with that in a couple of weeks. But it is not the problem Paul's addressing here. The problem here in this passage is the church's failure to confront and prosecute sin when and where it's found. So this is really a passage about what it means to be the church. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're here and you're new uh, to church in general, or specifically to this church, we're going to learn a lot throughout this letter, but particularly this morning, about Paul's vision of the church, what it means for us to live as a people uh, that the Scripture calls the ecclesia of God, the church. Okay, Remember the metaphors we've been working with, right, for the last few weeks. The church is a field, the church is a building, right? This was last week we talked about this. And if you've ever done any gardening you know that you, can, you can't just put the seeds in the ground and walk away and come back six weeks later and pick all the vegetables. You have to go out there almost every day, especially in Florida, and you have to check on things. The weeds grow up, right? Bugs come and start to eat the leaves and the plants. Too much rain or not enough rain always seems to be a problem. There's always something that needs to be done. It's the same with, with, um, with a house. You don't build a house and then just live in it. I wish that, that were so. Right, but it seems like things are always falling apart, falling apart, and needing to be fixed. Okay, and so what? Paul, this is these these metaphors are being carried out here. Just like if you're going to garden, there's always something to do. If you live in a house and you've lived there for very long and it's getting old at all, you know there's always something that's falling apart and needing to be fixed. And Paul says that's what it's like uh, to be in the church. 
Now, I have a dual reaction to that. Number one, it makes me tired. Right? Anybody else? Because it means that we're going to work, and no matter how hard we work, at the end of our work, something's going to fall apart and going to need, you know, there's always going to be work that needs to be done. And as soon as you get done with this project, by the time you finish it, something else has popped up. But secondly, and I want to talk more about this in detail next week, so come back next week. Uh, Secondly, not only does it make me tired, it also encourages me. Because it it means that where there's conflict, uh, where there's even trouble, where things, when screens go fritzy, you know, where people get crossways with one another, where, where the church seems to be, you know, just struggling and relationships are hard, uh, what, what, what the scripture teaches us is that doesn't mean we're doing something wrong. It means we're starting to get close to what the Bible calls community. There's a difference between pseudo-community and community. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning, a lot about it next week. But, but in the scripture... Even the vision the scripture has for the church is never a people where everything is never just this rosy picture where everything just gets along. Everybody just gets along and everything's great. It's messy. It's scary. There's conflict. And that's true of this people too. And so it encourages me that Paul says, that, that, see, that's the church. That's what it's like to live in that thing. So um, we have some things to talk about this morning, Okay. And as we look at this passage, here are the four things that I want you to see. Uh, what, the, remember, this is not a passage about sexual immorality. It's a passage about the church's failure to respond to the sexual immorality in the church properly. So here's what I want you to see. You have four things this morning. First, number one and number two, there are two wrong ways to deal with sin. I've called them tolerance and then avoidance. Okay. Third, there's a right way which I've called in your outline, weeping anger. So what I think ultimately this passage points us to is this approach that I would label weeping anger. And then, and then once we define that, fourth, the fourth point is just how do you find the power to avoid the two wrong ways to deal with sin and to execute uh, the right way, this weeping anger. So two wrong ways, the right way, and then the power to respond in the right way. That's basically what we're going to talk about this morning, okay? So let's just go. Let's go at it. Ready? Uh, wrong strategy number one. And I've called it tolerance. And I took that word right out of the English translation in verse 1. Do you see? He says, it's reported that there is sexual immorality among you in the kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. Now, this word toleration is a buzzword in our culture. It's become, in many ways, the highest of all virtues. I told you a couple weeks ago that, uh, not a friend of mine, but a guy I've been familiar with for years, Louis Giglio, who's the head of the Passion Movement, which is a movement among college students, was invited to give the benediction at President Obama's inaugural, and then kind of disinvited, he pulled out on his own. And here was the exact wording uh, in the inaugural committee's letter responding to this scenario. They said, as we now work to select someone to deliver the benediction, we will ensure their beliefs reflect this administration's vision of inclusion and acceptance for all Americans. What happened is, is somebody dug up an old sermon that he had preached where he had called homosexuality a sin and from 20 years ago, and the, the, brief, the one brief mention they could dig out of 20 years of sermons online uh, got him uh, disinvited from doing this. And the implication is that Lou Giglio is bigoted and mean, but that's simply not the case. This idea of inclusion and acceptance... There's a bit of irony in it, actually. 
Um, it's this demand for, and again, these words, this demand for inclusion and acceptance at the expense of truth is really what the, the culture is, is demanding that we do is that we, it's demanding that for the sake of including and accepting everybody uh, that you have to put aside truth, that you have to lay down truth claims, that you have to adopt the worldview that there's no truth, that there's no transcendent moral order that we're accountable to. And so the irony is, is that tolerance, as it's thrown around in our cultural circles today, is really intolerant. Tolerance is the most intolerant position. And see, this is what the Corinthians have done. There, there is this problem, verse 1, and instead of addressing it, what they've begun to do is they've begun to just kind of look the other way. And Paul says, no, you can't do that. And so the implication from the text is that we're, we're not allowed to just look the other way at one another's sins, that we have to willingly, uh, lovingly intrude into one another's lives. Tolerance doesn't make you a nice person, despite... What, how the culture might define it. To tolerate sin is sin. Tolerance, according to the scriptures, is not kindness. It's actually unkindness. It's selfish. And so what the scripture is saying is, is, if, is, is what the kind of response that we are to have is that we are to be willing to lovingly push into one another's lives in order to confront one another uh, where we begin to get off track. Now, you might object and say, that sounds horrible. <laughs> Who wants people sticking their noses? You know, I, I don't want anybody sticking their noses in my business. My answer to that objection is, then, then please don't join the church. Join a civic club instead. Right? And be very careful. Because that's a dangerous attitude to live with. The church is a confrontational community. And our priorities and our practices cut against the grain of our culture, which insists, see, our culture insists that love means you accept and include me without making any demands upon me. And the Bible and the church say, no, that's not right. Because, you see, love with no truth is not love. Love with no truth is not love. And tolerance doesn't make you a nice person. To tolerate sin is sin. Now, let me reason this out with you in a couple directions really quick, okay? Uh, just practically. First, and I don't, I'm not necessarily speaking from personal experience. I may or may not be. Let me just say it that way. But some of you are going to know exactly what I'm talking about when I say this. Can you imagine a family where nobody ever tells the truth? Nobody ever yells or gets mad because... The thing that matters more than anything else in the world is that everybody just get along, right? And so what's really happening in those situations, and again, not necessarily from personal experience, is like in every family, people do dumb things and hurt other people's feelings. But, but you see, because you can't talk about it, what happens is it goes subterranean, and then eventually, it, it, most times, it becomes this passive-aggressive behavior, or you go to Christmas, and everybody's smiling, but it's just tense. Anybody experience that ever? So the irony is, is what's most important is relationship, but by taking truth-telling out of the equation, what you actually do, you know, I, I want to spare relationships, so I take the truth-telling out, 
And then all I end up doing is destroying the relationship. You kill the intimacy. Because real relationship, real intimacy requires truth. Community without conflict, community without working through the issues of truth is pseudo-community. It's not real community. A family where you can't ever speak the truth is not real family. Love with no truth is out of touch with reality because it denies the existence of the fall and our brokenness and our need to be redeemed. There's something wrong with us, all of us. And so practically, love with no truth, with no confrontation, with no commitment to confronting and prosecuting the sin that we find in one another is not love. Love with no truth doesn't work. It destroys intimacy. But secondly, see, sin is what's killing us. I mean, our rebellion against our maker and our commitment to living our lives the way we want to, to gratify our own desires rather than living in obedience to what he's commanded to us in the scripture is the very thing that is destroying us. And so for you to offer me friendship without truth, you might as well invite me over to your house and serve me tea and lace it with arsenic. Right? Because sin is destroying our lives. Sin is is the enemy. That we are going after. And no mother, no mother sees her toddler playing in the middle of a busy street and says, well, good for her. Look at how brave she is, right? Look at how brave she is. No. She runs out. She snatches the child up. She spanks her bottom because a spanking hurts not nearly as badly as being run over by a car does. Right? So discipline is an act of love. Confrontation with truth is an act of love. Love with no truth is not love. And this is a passage that deals with this in great detail. It is a passage about church discipline and excommunication. Okay? Oh, those are scary words. But you'll see three different times how Paul calls the church uh, to decisive action. In verse 2. Let him who's done this be removed from among you. Okay? Verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved. And then finally, down at the very end, verse 13, which is, a, which is a Paul quoting from Deuteronomy 13, 17, and 21. He says, purge the evil person from among you. So there's this call for decisive action taken against the person who remains unwilling to repent of their sin. Now, a parallel passage that's very helpful is found in Matthew chapter 18, which if you've been around the church for a while, you're probably familiar with. And in Matthew 18, Jesus himself outlines a number of steps for his followers as they begin to church together and how they're to deal with sin in their midst. He says, if there's an offense, the first thing you do is you're to go directly to that person with the truth. Now, hopefully they listen to you Uh, They repent, that means they change their behavior, they come back in line with the gospel, and you go on and everything's great. But if they don't, if they won't listen to you, then he says, then what you're to do is to go take two or three other people who've noticed the same thing, and all of you go to them and say, it's not just this one person's opinion. You know, I've seen the same thing, you know, and, and on and on. If they still don't listen, then what Jesus says is that you're to go to the church, which most... Theologians and commentators think means something like go to the pastors and the elders or the spiritual authorities and bring them into the situation. And if 
at the end of all of that, all of this process of working this out with people, if, they, if your brother still won't listen, then Jesus says, it's quite stark, he says, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is, treat him as an unbeliever. Treat him as somebody who is not genuine in his confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have, I don't have time to get into all of the specifics this morning. Uh, and if you see in your worship folder, I think Josh announced it. At, at our vision dinner, in about 10 days from now, we're going to come back to this text, and we're just going to slowly walk through some of the practical stuff. I'm not going to do that this morning because it is so nuclear, we could get caught up in some of the details and miss the big picture. So if you have questions, come back to vision dinner. Uh, but what I want you to see in 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18 is that they're giving us a methodology for what we call church discipline and then ultimately, and again, as a last resort, this idea of excommunication. Now, let me define those words, okay? By church discipline, we mean the intervention of the church in specific areas where there are sin or disobedience or brokenness that needs to be addressed in order to nurse and, and restore somebody back to health. The intervention of the church corporately as individuals going to individuals, as groups going, as the officers and elders and spiritual overseers in the church, protecting and defending the church. And, and when people begin to go astray, remember the sheep, the one gets lost, leaving the 99, going to find the one and bringing them back to restore them to wholeness. The way that a mother disciplines their child. Right, The way that all good, good parents discipline their children to teach them the right way and to instruct them in, in not to go the wrong way. Uh, that When you join this church, everybody who's joined this church has taken a vow to submit to the spiritual authority and discipline of the church. And that can be scary. So this is a passage about a methodology of how to carry out church discipline in these cases. And ultimately, as a last resort, even this idea of when Paul says, purge the evil put out the person who's done this, deliver him over to Satan, this sense of what we refer to as excommunication, that there's this movement of people where where you have to say to somebody, despite whatever you may say, all the evidence in your life points to the fact that you are not sincere in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a logic. There's a logic that gets employed. See, The goal is always repentance. And the issue is not sin so much as it is unrepentance. And so the logic goes like this. Christians repent. You're not willing to repent. Therefore, you're not a Christian. See? Last resort, way down the line of having to call people to repentance. And where you meet at every step, all the way down the line with unrepentance, there being some some kind of of judgment that is passed on the part of the church to say, listen, I love you, I am for you, but I have to let you know there's some inconsistencies, and I see insincerity. And so we're going to have to address that. I mean, that's hard. Can you imagine? How hard is that? Now, let me, make a, let me make two brief points of application before we move on. The first is this, this is how serious this is. Right, And I think that's really the point of this passage. Not all the specifics necessarily, but just to see Paul's intention that the church, that, that tolerance is not an option. Tolerance is not an option for the church. Sin is the enemy and we have to go after it. And so that's really how serious this whole work is. But also, as hard as it might seem, this is love. Tolerance, as it's defined by our culture, is not love. Love with no truth is not love. Confrontation 
even if it escalates all the way to what Paul means by excommunication, and Jesus means by excommunication, that's love. Now, that takes, that takes a radical shift in, in your thinking, okay? But that's the wrong strategy, number one. Wrong strategy, number two, that Paul addresses in this passage is what I've called avoidance or withdrawal. Now, this is the opposite of tolerance. This is on the other side, okay? Tolerance is love without truth. Tolerance is choosing relationship at the expense of truth, but avoidance is truth without love or choosing truth at the expense of relationship. So here's what Paul is saying. He's very clear that if if there is a person who calls himself a Christian but is hard-hearted and refuses to repent, then despite all of your best efforts, he remains unwilling to address the problem that's destroying his life then the sin must be prosecuted and the person must be put out. That there must be some kind of verdict by the spiritual authorities in the church that carries real weight for that person and the whole body, that we just can't wink at sin. But here's what Paul is not saying, because see, we have to be careful. Here's what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that you have to choose truth at the expense of relationship. In other words, what Paul is not saying is that if someone is unrepentant, you stop having... You stop being their friend. I mean, there might be brutal honesty and even excommunication, but even then, that does not signal the end of the relationship. I have one example from my own life. A friend of mine who was really, in many ways, when I was young in ministry, and I know that that's funny, I feel old in ministry, although I realize I'm not, but I've been doing this for a while. In my early 20s and in my mid-20s, I had a friend who was one of my, my dearest friends and uh, was an amazing, talented young man at the time, but we eventually found out that he had been having an affair for many years and had kept it hidden. While they had, he and his wife had become members of a, of a church um, where he lived, and they began the process of, of church discipline. And the way they did this was is they, they called all their dearest friends, and they said, if he calls you, do not return his phone calls. If he emails you, you know, just, just act like he doesn't exist. I mean, literally, they said, if you, if you see him walking down the road, go to the other side of the road and go on the other side. You know, and I, and I, not, I, I understand the best intentions. I really do think they were trying to faithfully apply the principles of what Paul is, is trying to work out here. But I want to say that to, to go to that length, I think, is a twisting of what obedience to this passage looks like. Because, you see, confrontation can't become avoidance. There's a general warning here that you can't deal with sin by trying to wall off your life and keep the bad people out. Because, unfortunately for all of us, uh, the bad, you know, evil is not just out there. So this passage is, is not about how to deal with sin in the world, uh, but it speaks to that. It speaks to... The way you can take this too far and it becomes wrong on the other side. I'm reading a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, which was written by an ex-lesbian, atheistic, tenured college professor who became a Christian. It's awesome. Right? And her critique of the church is that we are engaging the sinful culture with truth but with no relationship truth at the expense of relationship and what changed her life how she became a christian she just somehow 
found this small Reformed Presbyterian church in the college town she lived in, and the people in the church began to embrace her as a friend and invite her over to dinner and invite her into their life together, speaking brutal honesty to her and yet extending their arms in relationship to her. They offered her both truth and relationship. Not relationship at the expense of truth. They didn't bring her in and then not address the issues in her life, but not truth at the expense of relationship. And so there's this tendency, what some of us want to do is we want to back, you know, we back away from Sitchin's life. When people need us the most, when they need us to push in, you know, this, this passage sometimes becomes an excuse for the sense of I'm backing away and then from out here I'm going to kind of lo- volley truth back into your life. Right? And I just think we have to be careful. But tolerance is love without truth or choosing relationship at the expense of truth. But avoidance is truth without love or choosing truth at the expense of relationship. And love is always both. Love is relentless truth-telling, but always within relational constancy and commitment. That's Paul's vision for the church. Relentless truth-telling, not, not tolerance. Confrontation and even anger all the way to excommunication, but with relational constancy and commitment, not avoidance. Not condemning a person, but trying to save them. Not giving up on them, but trying to regain them. Compassionate, compassionate confrontation. Weeping anger. See? So no anger to sin is a wrong response. But so is anger without love. The true gospel response to sin in others is what I've called and what I think helps is the sense of weeping anger. This is what Paul says. Verse 2. You see it? You're arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? So Paul says the right response, the correct strategy... It's to be sad, it's to weep, but this weeping is not resignation, see, that's the thing. It's not love without truth, it's not tolerance. The weeping doesn't mean no anger. Paul's instructions are weep, then confront. Weep, then prosecute. Weep, then be angry, but let your weeping soften your anger. I think we had the perfect illustration of this in our community Bible reading this past week. Uh, In Judges 19, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, Benjamin, committed a terrible sin. And in Judges 20, the other 11 tribes that made up the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament gathered together to make war against the tribe of Benjamin. They threatened civil war. And the mandate from the Lord was very clear about Benjamin. Purge the evil from Israel. And so for three days straight, they went out and made war against Benjamin. But it's just amazing. You've got to go back and read the passage. Every night after they... They go out and they fight all day long, and then at night they come back, and when the battle is over, we're told they come back to their camp and they fall down before the Lord and they just begin to weep. And then the next morning they go out, and they come back at the end of the day, and they fall down, and they begin to weep again. And they would say, the way they would put it, if you read there, they would say, they would ask the Lord, they would come before the Lord, and they would say, shall we go out against our brothers again, the people of Benjamin tomorrow? Do we really have to do this? And the Lord would say, go, you have to do this. And so they would go, and they would do this battle you know, in response to the sin of Benjamin, and there would, there would be slaughter on the battlefield, and they would come back at the end of the day, and they would just fall apart and fall to pieces and begin to weep. And they weren't weeping because the battle was fought so hard. They were weeping because they loved their brothers, and they could barely find the strength to go out against them. But it's what the Lord told them to do. And that's what I mean by weeping anger. That There was an intent on the part of the 11 tribes to deal with Benjamin. See, tolerance was not an option. 
They had to do something. They had no choice but to confront the problem. So they went out against their brothers, but they went out weeping, not in righteous indignation. They went out brokenhearted and in humility. So in Galatians 6.1, the Apostle Paul gives these instructions to the church. He says, brothers, if any is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And so what we need to do is put that text in Galatians 6 alongside of this text in 1 Corinthians 5 to get the full picture. And Because, see, you read that, if anyone's caught in transgressions, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And we read it, we go right to the part about gentleness, and we breathe a sigh of relief. Because too often we read it as an excuse for toleration. That's not what Paul's saying. The work Paul calls us to is to restore, and that's a very specific word there that means to reset a bone that was broken but that didn't heal properly. And the only way you can do it is to go and to re-break it. That's excruciatingly painful. Okay, but, but it's these two passages right next to one another that help us get this work done. Because you see, if you're like me, and I'm assuming most of you are, we prefer to snuggle up close to a friend but never challenge them and never say hard things. Or... We like to withdraw to get to a safe distance away and then from a distance, like through email or Facebook or Twitter. Volley truth back into people's lives, right? It's relationship at the expense of truth or truth at the expense of relationship. But the gospel response is always, and it's counterintuitive, is to move toward. Not move toward just to snuggle, not back away so that you can speak the truth. The gospel response is move toward so that you can be brutally honest. And so my last point. How do we find the power then to live with this weeping anger that Paul's calling us to? Not tolerance, not avoidance. We need, I need a spiritual power to come into my life because this is so unnatural and so hard. And it's why Paul puts a gospel reminder right in the middle of this passage in verse 7. Where he says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For... Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, what does that mean? Let me explain that, and then I'm done, and we're going to come to the communion table. Uh, The reference there to Passover is the key to understanding what Paul's saying, okay? In Exodus chapter 12, God's people, the nation of Israel, were slaves in Egypt until God came and miraculously delivered them from their slavery. There were ten plagues that God sent uh, to, to... soften Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would let the people go. The last one was that every firstborn son in Egypt uh, was to be slaughtered. God gave instructions to his people that the way to avoid being caught in the plague was to take a lamb and to sacrifice the lamb and to put the lamb's blood on the doorposts of their house so that when the angel of death came through the city, he would see the blood on the doorposts and he would literally pass over the house. The people did this. The calamity came upon Egypt. Pharaoh had a change of heart, and he told them, leave now, get out, I don't want to have you here anymore. And it happened so fast. And because the people were in such a hurry, they literally didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise in order to bake it. They had to put the bread, you know, make the dough, put no yeast in it, cook the unleavened bread so they could take it with them on their journey as God led them out of Egypt. And it's, what happened was, is that became of particular significance. That at the festival of Passover, which was the yearly commemoration of this event, God commanded his people, Israel, to remember his salvation. As a part of that festival, he commanded them to go through their houses and to remove any leaven they found there. 
So as they celebrated the feast, one of the things they would do is they literally would go through and dig in their kitchen and look in all the drawers and all the corners of the house and make sure there was no leaven in the house. And by the time Paul is writing Corinthians, this image of the leaven had become the dominant metaphor for talking about sin or something that was bad or a corrupting influence. So Paul is saying that like the Israelites who went through the house, right, to get rid of all the leaven, so we, the church, have to do the work of Cleansing out the old leaven, we have to go and search out sin and find it and get rid of it because that's our work. He goes on in verse 8 to say, Let us celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so that old leaven is sin and selfishness. But to be unleavened there is to be made cleansed and made new. It's sincerity and truth in the place of malice. So Paul's saying very clearly, go to war against sin in your life and in your spouse and your kids and your friends and so forth. But pay careful, very, very careful attention to the language in verse 7. It's subtle. And you need to see it or we'll mess this thing up big time. The Apostle Paul says, cleanse out the old lump. But notice, it is not this. It's not cleanse out the old lump so that you might be unleavened. Paul says, cleanse out the old lump because you already are unleavened. That's big. In other words, pursue purity and holiness, not so that through your efforts you can become holy. He's saying pursue holiness because you've already been made holy. Become what you already are. That's what Paul's saying. You've got to keep those two things in the right order. Paul's not saying go to war against sin, do church discipline, purge the evil from among you so that you might become pure. He's saying you are already pure, now go to war. How does that work? How can that be? And that's why the next sentence is right there. It's the explanation for, Paul begins. That's because, this is the reason, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That just as the lamb that was slain in the houses of Israel on that night and the blood was, was, was painted on the doorpost and when the angel of death saw it, he literally spared the occupants of the house from the wrath of God. So Jesus on the cross has spared us from the wrath of God against sin. But what's interesting is that in the Greek, there's no word lamb. The Greek literally reads because our Passover, not our Passover lamb, the, the, the translators add it. But it means because our Passover has been sacrificed, even Christ. So Jesus fulfills all the different parts of the Passover typology, including, I would make the argument, what Paul's pointing to is the yeast removal ceremony that I talked about. Jesus not only died on the cross for our sins in order to quench God's wrath, but in him all our sin is taken away. God literally in Jesus has swept all the sin out of our lives. It's gone. If your faith is in Jesus, you're righteous. You're unleavened. Paul goes on to say in the next chapter, which we'll handle in in depth in in a few weeks, he talks about the sexually immoral and idolaters and thieves and greedy people who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then he turns to the church and he says, that's what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. See, not, but you washed yourself. You worked hard for holiness. No, he says, no, You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for his sake, because of his work. That is aorist, passive, indicative verbs. You say, what? What? Shut up. Right? 
aorist. It's already happened. Passive. It's what has been done to you and for you, not by you. Indicative. It is what you are, not the work you must do. It's already true of you. Thus ends the Greek lesson, right? And so here's how the gospel changes the work that we're to do. Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven. That's the imperative. That you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened already. In other words, keep it in the right order. We don't strive for holiness in order to become holy. We strive for holiness because in Jesus Christ we've already been made holy. I'm disappointed there were no amens there, if I have to be honest. That should be an amen moment, right? I still have to train you. I'm still working. Okay? The verdict has already come down, and Paul says, become what you already are. So how does that change the way we go about the work that's given to us in this passage? How does it help us to avoid the dangers of tolerance and avoidance? Well, on the one hand, when you see the gospel truth... That you don't strive for holiness in order to become holy. You strive for holiness because in Jesus Christ you've already been made holy. When that begins to be the thing you center your life on, then there there comes into your life a security in knowing that the verdict has already been passed and that security gives you courage. And courage is the antidote for tolerance. I'm not afraid to speak truth even if the truth is unpopular. I'm willing willing to talk about issues even if I know somebody's going to dig them up on the internet in 20 years and say, look, can you believe what this guy said? Right? I'm willing to push into a friend's life even when they don't want me to, to say hard things that will make them angry. There's courage, and courage is the antidote to tolerance. But also, what I learn is I've been cleansed because of another's work and not in and of myself, but on the basis of his record, not mine. And what that does is that produces a humility that will result in compassion. And compassion is the antidote for avoidance. I have nothing to boast about. I have nothing to hold over others. It's impossible for me to arrogantly withdraw from people. It gives me compassion. And compassion is the antidote for avoidance. You see, see, this is how the gospel begins to form us as a people, as a community, who can avoid these dangers and with weeping anger can begin to do this good work in and among ourselves. But we desperately need the mind of Christ. And we need Christ to be formed in us which is why I am so personally hungry for this meal this morning. And so let's pray as we prepare to come to the Lord's table now. Lord Jesus, these are hard words for us to consider because they are so outside of the the norm of the way that we live our lives uh, as American people. And yet we want to confess uh, that, that what you say is good, that what you call us to is good and what you say is true. We confess uh, our courage and our lack of compassion, uh, that, that, uh, that our, our hearts are so, uh, have such a deformity about them that we so often fail to, to uh, be faithful, that we are so prone either to, to-, to tolerance or to avoidance, to truth at the expense of relationship or relationship at the expense of truth because the juggling act of figuring out how to pursue people in relationship and then be willing to speak the truth is so hard it's just easier to do the other so please forgive us of our lack of compassion forgive us of our lack of courage and use uh, the meal we now come to and the promise held in it of the gospel of grace and of the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ and for the work of his sacrifice 
as the Passover lamb in our place. Help it to give us the mind of Christ that we might truly be faithful, that we might find power to be obedient to what you command us to in these scriptures so that we might bear fruit that will glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So receive the words of this benediction. Let them sink into your heart until you begin to weep with gratitude and joy for what God has done and weep for uh, the brokenness of the world and all the work that Jesus still has to do in you and me and in our church and in our world. And then after you've wept, uh, then go to war. Uh, that's, that's the call from this passage. So then the, the power to do that, the power to go weeping into war comes from being humbled by the gospel and secured by the gospel. And that's the promise of this benediction. So receive it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.